Morning, church. Um, my name is Njabulo Tonko, and I'm from the Nordvik Life Group um, under the leadership of Godfrey and Nolwa Zindab. So today I'll be reading Joel chapter 2 from verse 1 to 3. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the, earth, of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, they spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their light has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years and all the generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden behind, before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you to Nerdvag for praying and reading for us. Won't you join me in a word of prayer before we come to this passage? Our Heavenly Father, once again we arrive here with nothing but our need, and uh, deserving nothing, worthy of nothing, coming only on the basis of your great mercy in Christ Jesus. And so we pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, will you give us the eyes we need to see and the ears we need to hear and soft hearts so that we might receive this word, that it might be planted deep within us, that it might produce a a harvest in our midst. A hundredfold. We pray that you would be with us this morning. Meet with us. Rule us and comfort us and change us for your glory. Amen. Here's a statement to reflect on God is judge. How does that make you feel? I think it's fair to say that most of us will have strong feelings on the subject one way or the other. Some of us will be repelled or disgusted by the idea of God as judge. Others find it attractive. There's a certain thrill to it. Let me start with those who find the idea of divine judgment repulsive. I think you stand alongside many people in our society, if not most. I used to work with a statistician Tall, skinny, bony, Polish man. Uh, The suit he wore was always a shade of grey. Thick glasses. He used to work in in a little bunker in a dark, forgotten corner of our building. And he he would only ever emerge from the darkness uh, at the lunch hour. He'd be in there just grinding away, punching out, crunching numbers for reports that no one would ever read. And the only time he would ever emerge from that from that cave would be lunch hour for his smoke break. So lunch hour after lunch hour, he'd come out there, and occasionally he'd find me there eating my peanut butter sandwiches and reading my Bible. And so one day he actually asked me, what are you reading? I said, well, I'm reading the Bible. His very first response, his instinctive response, without even skipping a beat, I cannot believe in the angry God of the Old Testament. In other words, he completely rejected the idea of God as judge, and he wouldn't be exceptional in that. 
And of course, it's not just the world out there. Many Christians have the same objection. Some time ago, I was in an online debate, which I don't recommend ever, with a brother who claimed very loudly and very publicly that, and I quote, the concept of hell is completely incompatible with the concept of a loving God. He accused those who believe in God the judge of making God out to be some sort of cosmic child abuser. Maybe you would agree with him. So strong feelings against God the judge. Strong feelings on the other side as well. Some people seem to relish the idea of God's judgment. It gives them a sparkle in the eye, a spring in their step. They rub their hands in glee. Their whole approach to the world outside the church can be summarized and reduced to that bumper sticker, turn or burn, dry of pride. You can almost hear the wild cackling laughter that follows after those words. People who love the idea of God's judgment tend to be angry. And they believe that their anger is God's anger. Maybe that's you. Strong emotions on both sides. Some love the idea of God as judge. Others hate it. The thing for us to do is to look at what God himself has to say on the topic. We're in the Minor Prophets, the book of the Twelve, chapter 2, the prophet Joel. If you were here with us last week, what you'll recognize soon enough is that Joel is to Judah in the south what Hosea was to Israel in the north. Very similar messages. And remember that the The book of the 12 has an overall message. It has a a theme that runs all the way through. And the message of the overall book of the 12 is the death and resurrection of Israel. Israel will be judged and then restored. The message of Joel, if we distill it, is that the day of the Lord is coming. That's the heartbeat of Joel. The day of the Lord is coming. Whatever we think about God as judge... The moment you've read Joel, you cannot get away from the fact that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. There's just no other way to read it. In fact, we could summarize the message of Joel like this. Warning everywhere. Judgment on the inside. Judgment on the outside. Mercy on the other side. Warning everywhere. Judgment on the inside, judgment on the outside, mercy on the other side. We start with warning everywhere. The chapter, the book, opens with a word from the composer. You remember from last week there was an inspired person who pulled the 12 chapters together into a single book. And it's so noticeable that he opens the prophecy of Joel in the style of wisdom, not prophecy. This is what he writes. Chapter 1, verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. 
The wisdom he's promoting is to understand that this prophecy of judgment is a message for every generation. That means that the day of the Lord is in some way a past, a present, and a future reality. It's a message for every generation. And we see that playing out in the book itself. We see it in the very first words of prophecy as we transition from wisdom to prophecy. Chapter 1, verse 4. You can read along with me. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, a powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. It has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Joel, like Hosea, is a very colorful writer. And if the main metaphor last week was prostitution... The main metaphor this week is a plague of locusts. But it's not just a metaphor. This was an actual real-time crisis for Judah. In an agricultural society, a swarm of locusts is like a stock market crash. It's devastating for the entire economy, the entire society. It crippled Judah. It brought her to her knees. But as devastating and as destructive as the locusts were, they actually pointed to something even more dangerous. Verse 6 hints at it. A nation has come up against my land. Verse 15 says it plainly, gives the warning plainly. For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Under the hand of God, this real-time historical biological crisis is anticipating something much more severe. God allowed this plague of locusts to warn the people of a much more serious threat. Just like he did with Pharaoh in Egypt, if you remember that story. The locusts were a warning of something much more severe. The warning was to Israel in her day. The Lord continues to give us those very same warnings to this day. Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. When we look out at the state of the world... All the corruption, the decay, the breakdown, physical breakdown, moral breakdown, relational breakdown, all of it, it's a warning. It's a warning. It's a present judgment. The wrath of God is being revealed, present tense. It's a lesser judgment warning us of a much greater judgment to come. It's a lesser judgment anticipating the full and final day of the Lord. The question for us here this morning, 
Are we going to hear the warning? The world is a broken mess because of sin. I don't need to convince you. Sin, if you remember from last week, is self-separation, self-alienation from God. If we stubbornly persist in sin, if we insist in our hard-heartedness on being God-forsaken, in the end, God will give us what we want. That is judgment. God giving us over to our desires, our hard-hearted desires. In the end, God giving us what we want. That's judgment. Hell is simply that for eternity. Hell is simply eternal judgment. Us choosing ourselves forever. As C.S. Lewis said, hell is the final monument to human freedom. That's why in hell, no one will ever want to leave. We will continue, if we are there, God forbid, continue choosing self over God forever in a downward spiral of hard-heartedness. So when you see the consequences of sin and the consequences of the brokenness of this world which are all around us, when we see those consequences in greed, in sickness, in theft, in a plague of locusts, we need to ask ourselves, what would happen if God took the reins off of all of this? If he just let us run? If he just gave us over to ourselves? If we were just left to ourselves, what would happen? The answer is hell. When you see sin and its consequences, it's a warning. And even the warnings of God's lesser judgments are a mercy to us. They're a mercy. He's pleading with us, don't carry on down this road. It goes off of a cliff. Don't run into this house. It's about to collapse. Warning everywhere is God's mercy to us. In chapters 2 and 3, Joel takes us to judgment executed. And then in the first place, judgment is on the enemy inside. The enemy inside, that's today's passage. Chapter 2 verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them. Through the years of all generations, fire devours before them. And behind them, a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. But behind them, a desolate wilderness. And nothing escapes them. Question for us. Where is the alarm sounded? In Zion. On the holy mountain. 
to warn the inhabitants of the land. God's people. The judgment is coming like a plague of locusts. A plague so thick that it actually shuts out the sun. The plague is a great and powerful people coming against Zion. Against God's people. An army that covers the mountains and scorches the earth. This is the original scorched earth policy. The Garden of Eden lies before them, but behind them, there is nothing but a wasteland of destruction and mayhem. They are coming on the day of the Lord. It's His day. It's His judgment. They are coming against His people. And as we said, the day of the Lord is yesterday, but it's also today and tomorrow. There are a number of tremors before you arrive at the main earthquake. The hordes of Babylon came against Jerusalem. They destroyed everything. Judgment was executed. Then the Persians allowed Israel to rebuild. Then the Greeks invaded. Then it was the turn of the Romans. They destroyed everything. Judgment was once again executed. Each judgment was a tremor. Each tremor was a day of the Lord, bringing Israel closer to that day of the Lord, block capitals, the final earthquake. In that sense, the day of the Lord has already come on God's people in the past, and it will come again. And it will come on the church. There will be a great shaking out. As Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 gives it to us. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now if that scares you like it scares me, we're in good company. It scared the prophet Joel. And it moved him to plead with the people. Chapter 1, verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in. Pass the night in sackcloth, O, my, o ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. The day of the Lord is coming. If that doesn't make us take repentance seriously, nothing else will. And elsewhere, God says to his people through Joel, rend your hearts, not your garments. The day of the Lord is coming. If that doesn't stop us pretending to repent, nothing else will. If the day of the Lord doesn't put an end to the religious games that we play to impress each other, Nothing else will. Repentance is about our hearts. It's about what God sees, not what your friends at church see. Don't make a show for other people. The day is coming. 
Make right with the Lord. It's his day and he is coming. With the day in mind, the Apostle Paul calls us to be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. The day of the Lord is coming. And so we will watch how we live very closely. Because there's a new urgency. The judge is on his way. He could arrive at any minute. We want to be about his business. We want to be ready when he arrives. And so living in the light of the day means at least, at least repentance, true heartfelt repentance and a careful life. Not a careless life, a careful life. Because the day is coming. Judgment is coming to the enemy inside. It's also coming to the enemy outside. Joel chapter 3 verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them amongst the nations and divided up my land. The nations, the very nations that God used to judge Israel would also themselves be subject to his judgment. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, they were all mighty empires that enslaved and colonized the people of God. They all lived by the sword. And in the end, God gave them over to the sword. And they died by the sword. Each one of those Empires fell like dominoes. Each one was swallowed up by the next. God judges the enemies of his people. Who exactly are the enemies of God's people? Assyria, Babylon, Rome, and today? Who are the enemies of God's people today? Do you have someone in mind? Do you have a group in mind? Is it the Muslims? The neo-Marxists? The LGBTQ community? The atheists? The prosperity preachers? The false prophets? Is it the liberal loose Christians? Or the harsh judgmental Christians? Who? The Bible tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In Ephesians chapter 6, God draws back the curtain, and he shows us who our real enemies are. And they are not flesh and blood. It's, not, it's ultimately not the Babylonians or the university professors who are our enemies. It's the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What does that mean for us? It means that relishing the prospect of judgment on this person or that group is dangerously misplaced. This person or that group is just a puppet. 
They're just a puppet. They are just being used by the same person who uses us from time to time. Satan is the true enemy of God's people. If you want to pray for God's vengeance to come, pray for it to come on Satan and on his legions. And then pray for the salvation of your enemies, whoever they might be. Pray for their salvation. Pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Those are our weapons and our only weapons in this struggle. On the day of the Lord, God will judge the enemy outside. And in the end, that means Satan. We've said a whole lot. That's a mouthful. Let me just review. We live in a world where locusts can destroy human society, and they still do in 2023. It's a world groaning. It's a world given over to sin. All of it is a warning to repent, to turn back to God. God, in his mercy, warns us that judgment is coming. He is patient. He warns us in his mercy that judgment is coming. He has set aside his day. He has set aside many days before the day, lesser judgments that warn us of the great judgment. On the day of the Lord, there will be judgment on the enemy inside. And there will be judgment on the enemy outside. The church itself will be shaken. Satan, his legions, and his followers will be judged. Let's pause there for a moment and ask what I think is a critical question. What does the fact that there is judgment both inside and outside mean for us? What does it mean for us in how we think about judgment? Remember, we started with those strong opinions. Well, what does the fact that there's judgment on the inside and the outside mean for those strong opinions? Well, let's start on the outside. Judgment on the enemies of God's people, Satan and those who stubbornly choose to side with him to the very end. Those who choose allegiance to evil over God all the way to the end. They will be judged for their deeds. And to those of us who hate the idea of God as judge, I think if we, if we fear, if we're honest, we have to admit that we actually want that. We need that. We need that final judgment because what we're talking about is justice at the end of the day. And we all want justice in the end. All of us. You know, it's, it's so popular to prefer love over judgment until someone cuts you off in the traffic. Right? And then you're all about justice. You are all about justice. And the curses that you call down on this learner driver are from the pits of hell. (laughs) And that's just jumping the queue. What about real evil? Miroslav Volf lived through the horrors of the Bosnian genocide. And this is how he puts it. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative. Either God's violence or human violence. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance 
will be unpopular with many Christians, especially those in the West. But it takes, and listen to what he says here, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the opposite thesis, that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that in this world of evil and injustice, the only real comfort we have is the day of the Lord. A day on which all the books are going to be open. The time for spin and deceit and fake truth, it's all gone. And we all stand naked before our maker. All of the books are opened and there is a great reckoning by a perfect and impartial and incorruptible judge. This is the bare reality. Either God underwrites justice or there is no justice. And it's only dog eats dog. And we might as well get eating or we're going to be eaten. And so we should not be so quick to dismiss God as judge. We do not want a world without God's justice. If we are repulsed by it, I think we need to think again. In the face of all the injustice in this world, God as judge is the only comfort there really is. That's judgment on the outside, and it brings comfort. What about judgment on the inside? That's not so comfortable, is it? The problem with Lady Justice is that she's blind. You've seen that picture of her, that famous picture of her holding the scales of justice. Don't forget the blindfold. Justice is impartial. So if you want judgment, if you relish judgment, be careful. Because it will come to you. And by the same measure that you use for others. That's what our king has decreed. He's told us, be careful. For those of us who get a kick out of God's judgment, and I think that's all of us. We, All of us get a a kick out of judgment on others. We're not so keen on judgment for ourselves. We tend to have both strong opinions, just at different times of the day. For those of us who get a kick, or when we get a kick out of God's judgment, when we weaponize it against others, and we've done that, haven't we? We've all done that at some point. When we weaponize God's judgment against others, we are missing this point. If you relish God's judgment, if it gives you a thrill to think about others in front of the judge, I don't think that you or I have grasped what the day of the Lord is going to be like. We too are going to have to give an account. And do you know what that's going to be like if we've spent our life wishing God's judgment on others? Justice on the inside, if we grasp what it is, can only come with fear and trembling. It can only come with an extreme and profound posture of humility. 
When it sees sin in someone else, justice on the inside leaves only one response. There but for the grace of God go I. Justice on the inside means that you would never, ever wish the day of the Lord on your worst enemy. The day of the Lord can't possibly fill us with self-righteousness. It should fill us with terror. As Joel prophesied, the day of the Lord is great and full of fear. Who can endure it? Answer, no one. In fact, the only way we can ever face up to judgment on the inside without a crushing sense of doom is mercy on the other side. After judgment, God restores his people. Joel chapter 2 verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land. He had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach amongst the nations. We sang about it this morning. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent amongst you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no one else. And my people shall never again be put to shame, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and on, on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. The other side of judgment on Israel is restoration. The other side of death is resurrection. The other side of the plague of locusts is an abundant harvest. There is mercy on the other side. What form does that mercy take? In mercy, God will defeat the enemy outside. That's verse 20. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. In mercy, God will give his people the abundant life, the good life. Verse 24. The threshing floor shall be full of grain and the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. In mercy... God shall overcome the enemy inside so that he can bless his people with his presence. With his unmediated presence, his immediate presence. By his spirit, verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Where does this mercy come from? Verse 18, the Lord had pity on his people. Mercy comes from the character of God. It's who he is. 
His nature is always to have mercy. It comes from his love for a people, the very same people who deserve his judgment. Perhaps you've had this question on your mind, on your heart, and I think it's the key question. Who gets judgment and who gets mercy? It's the right question. The Israelites of Jesus' day were waiting for Joel. They were waiting for this prophecy of Joel to be fulfilled. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and to bring judgment on the enemy outside. It was one of the biggest shocks of his ministry, of Jesus' ministry, that the day of the Lord didn't unfold like that. Instead of sitting on the judge's bench, the Messiah stepped into the criminal's dock. You see, Jesus understood all too well that mercy can only come the other side of justice. He understood that before you can judge the enemy outside, you have to judge the enemy within. He understood that the armies of Satan must first be used to judge Israel before they themselves can be judged. And that's precisely what the cross is. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. Christ forgave us all our sin, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, the enemy inside. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, the enemy outside, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, at the cross, Jesus defeated the enemy outside by defeating the enemy within. Do you see that? He disarmed Satan by dealing with sin because sin is the only weapon Satan has against us. And once he had cleansed us of our sin, the spirit of God's empowering, embracing, loving spirit, his loving presence could descend on all people. The Lord could truly be in our midst. Completely in our midst. Immediately in our midst. The Messiah has only one piece of business left. The day of the Lord requires of him one last thing. As the Apostles' Creed says, On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. When Jesus returns, he is returning as judge. On that day, who gets mercy? On that day, who escapes the judgment of God? The prophets answer. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And brothers and sisters, remember, you cannot wait until that day. If you wait until that day, you won't call on the name of the Lord. You will only be confirmed in the hardness of your heart. You won't want to call on the name of the Lord. 
Nobody in hell ever wants to leave. And so if we are to call on the name of the Lord, we must do that today. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The cross makes that possible. And we can call on him today. We give the last word to the judge himself, but it's not the word of a judge. It's the word of a loving father. It's the word of a loving elder brother. It's God's word of love, his word of invitation to you. Joel chapter 2 verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of justice. But as soon as those words leave our lips, we have to, we have to thank you that you are also a God of mercy. Thank you for Jesus who makes both possible. Thank you that he defeats the enemy outside by defeating the enemy within. By his spirit, we call on his name to be saved. We do it today. We call on his name to be delivered from sin and Satan. Father, we long for the life of full abundance with you. Father, help us to As we await the day of the Lord, help us to live careful lives. Lives of true, heartfelt repentance and trust in Christ as we wait for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.